We are going to go ahead and get started for the evening. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Revelation chapter 3. Trying to count here. This is the fifth church, correct? Fifth church? And I, and I forgot to ask you if this is legal or not, but could you go over those? I was hearing the young said that um, the first one, Ephesus needs to love, Smyrna needs to be faithful, uh, Pergamum needs to discern, uh, Thyatira needs to think, and then Sardis needs to wake up. Could you kind of give us a little brief? Uh, is that legal to, for me to ask that question? Yeah, you know, that's good. That's Thanks. good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that w- what's great about these letters is that they confront the different strengths and weaknesses that any church or really Christian is going to have and struggle with. Uh, and remember, there's seven churches. Those are literal historical places and real historical churches. But the number seven is significant because it represents totality, completeness. And so Jesus is speaking, yes, to seven specific churches in Asia Minor in the 90s AD. He's also addressing through them every church that will ever exist in all of Christian history. And so uh, there is, I mean, this is meant for us. That's why every letter to each church ends with, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Remember, and so, yeah, Ephesus, uh, they, they had right doctrine, but were growing stale in their, in their knowledge, and their love was, was shriveling up. And as you walk through what Jerry just walked through, you, you see these different strengths and weaknesses of the churches, and we need to uh, take heart and take note with, with what's going on with those particular churches. Scott, anything about the earlier churches? You got it. Well, let's pray. Jerry, can you pray for us? And yes. then we will uh, dive in. Indeed. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are so grateful. Uh, for this opportunity to uh, open up your word. Lord, what a gracious um, thing you have done for us to give us all we need for life and godliness through your son and through your word. And so we thank you for um, these seven churches and what we can learn and and the warnings and um, um, how we need to grow. And Lord, there's, this seems so practical for us um, as a church and individuals to be able to um, think about when we're, we've grown drowsy spiritually and uh, how we need to wake up at times. And Lord, I, I'm so grateful um, for this opportunity, and we pray that we'd be faithful um, in the way we teach it. We would all take these to heart and uh, that we would um, live a life more worthy of the gospel um, due to what we um, understand and think about tonight. And so we commit this time to you, and we're very grateful uh, for the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Scott, could you read 3, 1 through 6? Sure. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard, keep it and repent If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, if you look at the screen here, I'm just going to show a couple images of Sardis. Um, some of the ruins you can see here, they had a, a, a large temple to Artemis, similar to Ephesus. 
And if you look back here, do you see this incredible uh, Acropolis, as they called it, back behind the city? Uh, this was their fortification if they were ever threatened by an enemy. And you can still see to this day uh, some of the, um, some of the, can you guys go to the next slide on here? Some of the ruins you'll see up here, uh, some of these stone structures still exist for a fortification wall that was up at the top of the Acropolis. And it was considered an unbeatable city for this reason. The, the, the hill was so steep and the way up there was so narrow that the, the king and all of his troops could hide up here in Sardis if they were attacked, which happened numerous times. And there was just no way it seemed like to beat them. And what ended up happening was, uh, let's go to the next slide as well. I think my iPad's failing on me. Uh, you can see how steep this is. I mean, this was like, how do you get up this side of, of this mountain? So uh, if you've been here for Ezra in our church service, remember Cyrus who sent the people back? Well, about eight years before Cyrus took the, sent the people, the Jews, back to Jerusalem to rebuild, he was here. Eight years before he was here, right before Ezra won, he was here eight years earlier, and he had his, his army surround Sardis, and it looked like there was no way he was going to win this battle. And so one of Cyrus's troops, one of the Persian troops, was standing here, and as legend is told by Herodotus, it's hard to know how true the details are, but they are told that one of, this, uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, soldiers up here, uh, his helmet fell off and rolled down the hill. And so uh, in the evening, I suppose, he found a way, a secret pathway, basically down the hill to get to retrieve the helmet, and he went back up to the top. And one of the Persian soldiers saw the pathway back up to the top and said, okay, I know how to get up there now. And that night, he took some of the troops, and this one soldier went to the top, and they actually found a way to take the city through that means. And so that actually happened twice. It happened a couple hundred years later uh, by um, uh, Antiochus III, uh, who also took the city in a similar way. So why do I mention that? Well, almost every commentary mentioned these two facts. And they said, it was famous in Sardin history to say, at the very moment when you're falling asleep, at the very moment when you think that you are unbeatable, at the very spot where no one is watching, guess what? You might be taken and you might be completely ruined. And it seems like both Jesus coming as a thief, which he says in this, to this church, and also them getting sleepy behind the wheel, both of those may be in some way Jesus alluding back to their history. And this was extremely well known uh, at the time period uh, for what happened there. Uh, so let's jump into the first verse. Uh, Revelation again, 3.1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jerry, some opening thoughts about... That's a pretty amazing opening statement to this church because yeah. normally we're used to starting with the uh, encouragement. Right. Yeah, you get a little bit, like if you're a teacher, you're supposed to do that at parent-teacher's conferences, say a couple nice things, make up a couple nice things if you have to, but you come <laughs> up with something, and then, but man, he gets right down to business here, the, our Lord Jesus, in just saying, there is no compliments to this church. They look pretty good on the outside, but there are no, as compared to all the other ones except for one coming up, um, in a couple of weeks. And so that, and, and I thought it was interesting, and I don't know that I would have picked up this on my, on my own, but there's also no um, opponent here. There isn't anybody that seems like it's against them. It seems like the church is just bad on their very own. They haven't needed any help to get to this dead spot that they're, that they're in, which is uh, certainly a scary place to be for them. Yeah, there's no mention of the Nicolaitans, the yeah. false teachers. There's no mention of Jezebel, the, pro the prophetess. Uh, there's no mention of a number of different things. Instead, it sounds like the problem uh, lies with, with the people themselves. 
You know, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, at the beginning of his sermon, he, t he told, he started with his story. It was so good. He just draws you into the story. He said, uh, it, was a, it was a woman in Turkey. She got on a bus and she had an envelope. She opened up this envelope and she began to read from this envelope or look at this, well, the contents of the envelope. And she knew immediately that she was a dead woman. And he said, was she in the CIA? Was she in MI6? Was she going to get assassinated? No, she was a missionary and she was a missionary doctor and she had just gotten x-rays and she knew how to read the x-ray and she was on her way to see another doctor who was going to read the x-ray for her and she pulled out the x-ray and she could read and she knew that she was a dead woman. She knew that she was going to die. Well, the same is true, Ferguson said, of this church. I mean, it, people just talked about, can you imagine this church gathering? They're getting ready for the Lord's Day. They're all getting dressed up and they, they go to church. They, this letter is going to be read that Sunday and there they sit waiting for this letter to be read and this is Jesus' x-ray of the church. I mean, Jesus has eyes like flame of fire and he, they, the very first verse is like, there's, there's no compliment. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, and they're probably just eagerly waiting, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I mean, talk about utterly devastating for the congregation to hear that. Red, I, mean, I just think you, we need to feel the, the weight of it, the, the solemnness of it. Uh, one of the most solemn of all the letters one pastor said, disturbing and distressing it would have been to listen to th these words from the exalted Christ. Uh, yeah, and that's just to, to introduce that, that verse, yeah. And the reputation of being alive. Like that's, I think they, wouldn't that kind of remind us that they maybe didn't even know it. Until they read this, they were dead, but didn't even realize it possibly. Or two other people that saw this church, they may have been kind of respected. What do you make of that, Mark? No, I know. I, I mean, this is why the most important thing in the world is to assess ourselves and our own local body with biblical criteria, not criteria we made up yeah. or criteria we feel like suits a healthy church or a healthy Christian or what the culture would say about our church or about me as a Christian or about what's popular in this moment in our culture or what, you know, this church may, no, we don't know a lot of details. This church may have been financially very prosperous. Okay? They may have had large numbers. They may have been dramatically growing in numbers. I mean, for all we know, that could have been happening. This is a church that has a reputation for what? Life, but in reality, there's death. So it is possible to have a church that is large, growing in number. It is a church that seems to be thriving in the community. People are doing works of service, and no doubt they're active in many activities and programs, and they've got all kinds of things going on, and everybody looks at that church and says, I want to be part of that church. Mm -hmm. I wish I was part of that church. That church is alive. Look at all that's going on. And that the pastor gets up and maybe says things that pastors probably shouldn't say, or shouldn't say, which is like, you know, God told me this, and God told me that, and the Lord was speaking to me this morning, and of course it wasn't through the Bible, just, you know, hey, God, I had a dream last night, and God told me this, and God told me, it just sounds like they're alive. God's working and speaking, and this is amazing, and you got all these activities and all these things, and maybe they're given to people in the local area, and they're writing checks for certain organizations, and man, this looks like the place you want to be. Are we judging that church with biblical criteria? Are we judging that church based on our intuitive sense of what seems to be a happening place, an exciting place to be? Like, man, look at their kids' program. Look at the amount of resources that they have. Look at all this activity. Look at these trips. They, this, this trip they took their youth group on was unbelievable. This thing was thousands of dollars per person. The church paid a huge chunk of it. This is amazing. I mean, you can imagine all the ways this could be going, and everyone wants to be part of this church, except for Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is the one saying, this church is not as healthy as it looks. In fact, it is on death's doorstep. Uh, much of the congregation, he will say, is, is actually dead, and some are barely hanging on by, by a thread. He has some encouraging things to say, but some further thoughts on this reputation versus reality idea. 
Yeah, man, one guy just said there is such a thing as an illusion of spiritual vitality. Uh, another guy just said Sardis was what we would refer today, to today as a nominal church. It was a Christian in name, but name only. The members professed faith in Jesus, but in reality, their hearts were turned uh, from him. And I just think, uh, what a tragic thing. One guy just said there is something unspeakably tragic about a dying church that professes to serve a living Savior. Uh, it is a terrible and solemn thing to be physically alive and at the same time spiritually dead. And I, I even, I mean, I worked at a warehouse I was thinking about uh, years ago, and most of the people there, I think, were non-Christians and would have said they were non-Christians. There is something weighty and tragic about that. But there's something more tragic, I think, about people who assume that they are secure and safe and in a right relationship with God and who are not, who are, who are deceived. And I feel like this is a whole church who's filled with, with nominal Christians. And I just, I mean, we talk about it a lot at our church. I mean, I was a nominal Christian for years, and it comes down to the, the point is, is Jesus useful to you, like a ticket yeah. out of hell, or is he, is he beautiful? Is he compelling? And I think that's, that, that's it. I, I mean, uh, do we see glory in Jesus at the cross of, of Christ? And there's, I, love, I watch these videos. Uh, I like to see videos where, where there's glory on display. It could be sports stuff. There's glory. I mean, the Braves, there, there's a uh, 1991, I think it is, Francisco Cabrera up to bat and bottom of the ninth inning, two outs. I mean, it's just incredible to watch. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible to watch uh, that. There, there's glory in that. And there's, with animals, I like to watch these animals, like the great whale. There's, there's a video, they're, they're on this boat. They're off trying to find this whale to jump out of the water. And this whale jumps like right next to the boat. And you can hear the audible response, just astonishment at, at the glory of it. Well, do you see glory in Jesus? I mean, do you have that amazement and wonder at the cross? Or is it, ah, oh, it's just boring. Like for me as a non-Christian, ah, oh, I, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I do not want to talk about Jesus. I'm bored by the Bible, bored by Jesus. But after conversion, it's like I cannot stop talking about the cross. I cannot stop. I mean, just so much glory there. And I, like you're saying, you, you want to be sure about yourself. And I think... The, uh, one pastor, I think, just said he, what keeps him up at night is the nominal Christians in his church. And I'm just, it's just so important. Is Jesus compelling and beautiful? Or is he just simply useful? Uh, so just this church is filled with nominal believers. Well, let me add, so I don't know if y'all know, but so you were, you were a member of a church before you were truly converted, although you, you, could, you could make yourself and others think you were converted. I was in the same boat. And number two, you went on a mission trip, right? To where, Jamaica? Mexico. Or Mexico, sorry. So you, you went on a mission trip with, with you. So you are able to be a member in good standing with a, with a local church. You can, be, uh, you can have your Bible. You can be in agreement with the Bible. You can be going to church every single Sunday. You can be part of a pastor's family where your dad's a pastor. Uh, you can be going on missions trips. You can be doing all those kinds of things and have a reputation for being alive. No doubt many mm -hmm. people who knew you would have said, Scott is a Christian. Mm -hmm. People would have said that. And yet, you didn't know the reality. I didn't, I didn't know the reality about myself either at the time. But if, if Jesus would have walked in the room and given the report card to you and me, he would have said, you guys have some reputation of being alive. I had less of the reputation of being alive than Scott did. People kind of started to figure me out. Yeah. Scott was much, people thought Scott was great. They were like, he, Mark, I don't know about him. But we both had some reputation and people would have thought we were Christians, generally mm -hmm. speaking, True. except your brother who knew I was a fake the Somehow. whole time. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, he, he knew. But, but we had a reputation for being alive, but we were dead. And I think that no one would have been more shocked by the report card than you and me had we gotten it before 2003. Oh, I agree totally. Yeah. And isn't that what's beautiful about these letters? I mean, I think that's why they're in Scripture. And we love, we love the passages, all of 1 John, Romans 8, that talk to us about our assurance in Christ. That's never the idea that we would want to um, at all teach that there isn't true assurance for those that are truly believers. But these passages, and Mark, I really learned this from you. It was like 18 years ago. I know you look at Mark, and it's like that was when he was three. But 
Examine, this is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. This is what we're supposed to do. We're commanded to do that. First, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or, are you, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So this is a biblical thing to do. When we do that, we believe from um, Romans 8, 16, the Holy Spirit will testify with your spirit that you're truly a child of God. And so this isn't to cause doubt for the true believer, but somebody that was in Scott's boat when he was 23, or Mark when he was 16, that really was convinced of something that wasn't true. These are great wake-up calls. No, I know. And uh, if, if can you all turn just for a moment to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. As you're turning there, just take, take something like the fruit of the Spirit. So I won't list all of them, but you know most of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. You, you do know that that's a criterion for whether I'm a believer. You can look at the, that list and, and see, is the Spirit at work in my life? But, but here's why things like that, we got to be so careful. Is there a worldly counterfeit of love? Have you ever seen a non-Christian who seems like a loving person so far as like, you know, in a worldly sense, relatively speaking? Yeah, of course. Do you see joy in non-Christians, like in a sense of like happiness about things? Sure. Do you see sometimes degrees of peace? Sure. So you understand there's, there's, a, there's a counterfeit version of all the fruit of the Spirit. So just because I sometimes am happy or sometimes I feel like affection of love or sometimes I'm, I'm, I have some peace, that does not mean I have the fruit of the Spirit. My goodness, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is not natural. No one naturally has the love, joy, and peace, and patience from the, from the Holy Spirit that comes from a new nature. So the question is, is the love that I have ultimately a love for God, a delight in God? Is the joy ultimately joy in Christ? Is the peace ultimately coming from Jesus? And if it's coming ultimately from the triune God and spilling over in how I treat other people, then that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the, there's a secular version of all those fruit. And so beware that you not just think, well, I, I'm sometimes patient, I'm sometimes kind, I'm sometimes, I have goodness, therefore I'm a Christian. Are those things rooted in a, in a high view of Christ? Are they, are they rooted in a delight in Christ? And to, to make this point a little bit from a different text, John 6, Jesus just fed the 5,000 in the first verses. And, and look, at this, look at this verse right here. Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I'll just stop there. This looks like revival is going on because you have a crowd of 5,000 men plus probably 5,000 women and maybe 10,000 children. You got a crowd of 20,000 people that just got fed this miraculous food and they are they're, they're, they're leaving their home for the time being. They're leaving work for the time being, and they are chasing Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. Right? They, they are running after Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're giving days of their lives, because they were so hungry, days had gone, days have gone by. They're doing nothing but listening to Jesus preach and chasing Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, and they're seeking Jesus. My goodness, I mean, this looks like they're alive. They have, if I were to look at this moment, I said, this is a reputation of being alive. This crowd looks like they're on fire for the Lord. They're chasing Jesus all over the place. They can't get enough of being around Jesus. And then verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then it goes on, and look, skip down here. After Jesus speaks a little bit further, look at verse 60. Well, let's start in verse 52, excuse me. Verse 52, and then we'll skip to 60. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're, they're troubled by what Jesus is teaching, that he's, he's the bread of life. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, what Jesus was saying, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? And he goes on and look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So at the end of this incredible week, of people seeking and listening to Jesus, this crowd of 20,000, how many are left at the end of the week? 12, the 12 disciples. And one of them is the devil, it says later in this text. One of them is Judas. So you've got 11 left at the end of that week. A crowd of thousands desperately seeking Jesus, can't get enough of Jesus. They're, they wanna make him king, it says earlier in the chapter. They're, they're all about Jesus. Man, they got a reputation for life. Turns out Jesus says, you're seeking me because you're seeking what fills your stomach. You, you think I'm useful for a free meal. You're not understanding this sign about feeding you with miracle bread was meant to tell you something about who I am. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will not hunger. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst. I am the answer. I am the satisfaction. And when the crowd hears that his flesh is food, that his body is the true bread, they say, this makes no sense. How can a man be eaten or satisfy us? That makes no sense. We're out of here. And, and, and uh, 20,000 people walk away, and there's only 12 left, and one of them is going to walk away a little later. So these are the kinds of tests we need to ask ourselves. Is Jesus mainly useful, like Scott said, to get out of hell? Or is he primarily glorious and satisfying and beautiful, the object of our faith and the object of our life? We can turn back to Revelation 3. Now, let's go back to the introduction here one more time, the first verse again. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, you remember every time Jesus starts a letter, he introduces it with a characteristic about himself from chapter one, and that characteristic is always tailor-made for that church's need. Why would Jesus mention this as what this church needs? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, just if you, if you don't remember, turn back to chapter one, uh, verses four and five. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, this is God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, that's the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Do you see the Trinity? Him is the Father, the seven spirits is a 
Revelation way of speaking about the sevenfold spirit of God, the fullness and completion of God's spirit, and then you got Jesus. So the seven spirits refer to the Holy Spirit, okay? Now go back to chapter three, that first verse. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Why does Jesus start by saying, I am Jesus who has the Holy Spirit? Because this church needs what? This church needs the Holy Spirit. And what this church needs is a transformation that cannot come any other way. This church doesn't need to grit their teeth and make some, you know, life changes. They don't need to turn over a new leaf and make a New Year's resolution about their future. They don't need to kind of do what they can do to make things better, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They need to desperately be on their faces, as we all do, and say, God, I need you to pour out your spirit on my life so that what once was boring and dry and uninteresting becomes radiant and glorious and compelling and satisfying. And I know that the rain from heaven cannot come except by your spirit. I'm going to die of spiritual starvation and thirst if you don't pour out your spirit from on high and give me the blessing undeserved of your spirit. And so this church needs to turn and say, God, we are virtually dead. There's very little left of our spiritual life. God, please give us the sevenfold spirit of God. Pour out your spirit, your life-giving spirit on us. Thoughts about the need for the spirit? I think that you're right in that there's only the spirit can wake us up from being dead in our transgressions and our sins. Or if you go to verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains that is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so even this idea to, to wake up, it's gonna be the spirit that is, for there's, few, there's a few in here, we're gonna see later on, that really will are truly believers. And, um, you know, and so I think this wake-up call is just so good. Um, the believer needs to come alive from the dead. And then sometimes, like I, some of the commentators talked about, like a spiritual drowsiness. Love to hear your, your thoughts on that. I'll just read this one quote from somebody who said, the same Jesus who called his friend Lazarus out from the grave possesses power to raise spiritually dead churches back to life. I just thought that that's so good. But one, one quick thing before we maybe talk about the spiritual sloth, Maybe, Mark, you can talk about this too, but how does a church basically slowly die? Like, I was just thinking, I mean, different people maybe talked about it, but where gospel and the glory of God and the word of God begins to be pushed to the periphery, I would assume happens, and other things, programs or other things start getting pushed into the central point of it. And it's like you even said, Mark, when we talked about your love gets grown cold, how, how easily you can talk even at our church about cameras and the air conditioner, and all, the, all of a sudden that can become overwhelming. Like, it's not a bad thing to talk about those things, but it can just so easily just become central in conversation. And Jerry, I just thought of you. One thing I love with Jerry is we'll be talking about stuff that we have to talk about, different things, elder stuff about the church or whatever, financial stuff or whatever it is. You were telling me all this different stuff. And then you always, you'll always say this, well, now to the good stuff, like now to the meat of the matter. We can talk about spiritual stuff now. And like, I think it's just a great way of, this is what we're really about. Yes, we have to deal with all this stuff, but that's peripheral stuff, this stuff that's, but this is the fun stuff. This is the good stuff. But any, any thoughts just on how a church dies slowly, like peripheral? Yeah, just let, let me just back to verse two again. So he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So that wake up right there, I think, is really powerful to think about because that's exactly what you're talking about, is we start being lulled to sleep spiritually. Mm -hmm. And Sinclair Ferguson had a tremendous 20 minutes or so of his sermon about this topic. But, but this, is, this is the idea where it, it, what, what falling asleep spiritually means, it's a, shift, it's a slow, almost imperceptible shifting of our passions over the weeks and months. 
So where the thing that was central about Jesus, that we were most passionate about, about his word, about evangelism, about seeing people grow in sanctification, that's where our passion was. That's where we were burning bright. Like there was a fire there. Over time, and it happens by degrees, right? Those things start taking more of a backseat in conversation. They start taking more of a backseat in our own thinking and our own priorities. Suddenly, secondary issues start rising to the front. Right? And you, you just notice over time, we start wanting to spend more time talking about this silly thing going on in culture right now that doesn't even matter for eternity, and we want to talk about this whatever it is, and it, it, the, the Christological stuff starts shifting to a back seat. And over time, what you'll notice as you look back three months, six months, three years, and you can see it, can't you? You can see areas where there's perhaps been growth, and you can see areas where there's been decline. And th there is nothing scarier over the long run than the slow drift into spiritual sleep. Again, this can happen over a long period of time, but if there is not intentional fighting against this drowsiness, we're going to fall asleep. Our flesh naturally pushes us to spiritual sleep. So, so if you go into neutral, you're going to sleep. There's no such thing as, as just as drifting into activity spiritually. We drift into indifference. We drift into sleep. The current of this world is dragging us toward worldliness, towards godlessness, towards Christlessness, towards rejection of the Bible, towards hell. That's the current. It's like you're on a strong current of a river and you're in the boat, right? And if you don't push back against that current, you're going to go with the current. And the current is saying, take a sleep. Don't think about eternity. Don't even think about death much. Think about the things of this life, of this world. What's going on with your finances right now? And of course, we have to care about those things because we're in the world, but we can so quickly become of the world where, where those things become priorities and become obsessions and our, all of our thinking and all of our waking time is spent on worldly things and eternal things start slipping to the background. Yeah, Ferguson, again, he was really good on that, but he said spiritual sloth causes loss of appetite, like loss of appetite for the Word of God, the things of God, you begin to desire them less. I mean, that's a clear warning sign that spiritual sloth is beginning to take over. Another guy, kind of paraphrasing him, he said, are we vigilant for early warning signs that we are losing our spiritual vitality? And it lines up similar to with the canary thing that you talked about, where like you may not be doing good spiritually, the canary's on your shoulder going down the coal mine, and they, the canary would die at a certain point. This means this is dangerous, and so there's certain warning signs that I'm losing my spiritual vitality. I mean, for me, and this may not be for everybody, but for me, one thing that I'll ask myself is just like, have I been moved or stirred by the gospel? I, I just ask that, and if I, if I think, no, I haven't, well, I feel like spiritual vitality then uh, is not strong. If I haven't been stirred by the gospel in a while, then I got to go back to the gospel. And, and that, like, what a joy it is to go back, uh, just to, I mean, just find things that help you, that jumpstart you, which is music so often, like you, you said, the hymn book has helped you tremendously, that Tyler Williams got you, I mean, rich hymns that, that lay out the gospel. I mean, I, I, the one I wrote down, I just, there's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And I, I just love this line, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, I mean, I know I'm as vile as that thief, washed all my sins away. And you just come back again to, to the wonderful gospel, and uh, we'll strengthen that spiritual vitality. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, for me, I just, have I been stirred by the gospel? If I haven't, oh man, something's wrong. You, you plead with God, and you go to the gospel again for, for the vitality to come back. Yeah, and sin just pummels us and, and, and just adds to this. But we have to turn to Romans 13 for a second. Verse 11. Romans 13, 11. And uh, I know we seem like we go here once a month. We probably ought to go here every other week instead. But besides this, you know the time. The hour has come to you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is foregone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There is no time to lollygag. 
no time for naps. Now, I am a napper physically and oftentimes too much spiritually as well, I'm afraid. But I am very moved by this passage every time I look at it. And then he gives us some specifics. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Like we're guilty of some of that, right? We kind of want to quarrel. We're a little bit jealous of somebody. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. No provision. Don't let anything in there. And so I appreciate your guys' warnings on this because we're going to gratify those desires and that's going to make us sleepy spiritually and it's dangerous. Yeah, and so, so one, one way to kind of get at this is, this is to ask, what are things that help wake you up when you're falling asleep spiritually? And I'm just going to give this kind of random stuff. This is not going to be true for everybody. I'm talking like you kind of talking about your own experience here. I know this is not true for everybody, but for me, some people, this, this probably has the opposite effect. For me, if, if I almost need just a cold bucket of water over my, over my head spiritually to sort of wake me up, this may sound strange, but, but it, it is hearing stories, oftentimes tragic stories that are going on in the news, something really just awful that's happening in the world. It has this effect of waking me up and sobering me to reality. If, if there's a tragic death or some, some horrific suffering that anyone's going through in the world, if, if I go read about it or watch an interview about it, it has this way of sobering me. So if, to go from just like wanting to veg out on entertainment, which does the opposite, it makes me feel like nothing matters. You know, you just feel like you're dead inside when you're scrolling or watching little video snippets and shorts on YouTube. Good night. The bane of human existence is shorts on YouTube. So, so like, you, if that's where I want to go at night, I have to make a deliberate decision. Sometimes I will literally choose to go to a news article. I know it's going to just shock me awake to say, wow, like, People are dying out there. Like, there's awful suffering in this world, and there's an eternity out in front of us. Life matters. Like, my moments matter. And so find the things for you that wake you up spiritually, that alert you to, to, the, to things that there's glory out there, there's horror out there, there's beauty. I mean, one thing is, I know, again, these are dark thoughts, but like thinking about like my children entering eternity unprepared. Uh, th I thought about that just recently. And just, just spending moments thinking about that and what responsibility I play in, in their life and what responsibility in my life my effect, effect it has on them, that, that sobers you. Like the thought of mind-numbing entertainment feels like such a sham when you're thinking about preparing your family for eternity. Like it's, just, it's like, what, what am I doing here with my time? I could be praying right now and look what I'm, I'm just scrolling or whatever it is. So, so I, I think fighting for things, what are things for you guys that help you wake back up when you, when you start to go numb? Calling Papa. That's that right. That usually does it. Yep, and, it, and oftentimes it is. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ that have so much, so many times kind of tapped me on their shoulder and is like, hey, quit this sleeping here. So, and certainly every time God's word, you know, 100% success rate to just to read, to think about, to meditate therein day and night, observe to do according to all that's written therein. Then he makes your way prosperous. Then he brings good success. So a constant diet of the word and then other believers, you all. I mean, I cannot be thankful enough for our church that wants to talk about spiritual things. It's, 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 that's oftentimes what wakes me up. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's going to be sermons and stuff that I will go to. Lodi Bauckham has a talk. I mean, I go to it over and over again. There, there are different things like that where it just, like, it gets me almost every single time, like stuff that he says, I've like almost memorized. Um, but I do think, thinking about my conversion, I, I do it all the time. Just that, well, I mean, I even go back and think about dad's conversion to think about God's invasion of grace there. And it, it just, it humbles me. It makes me rejoice and thankful. Like, I, yeah, I just, just wonderful. So, so playing off that, seriously, it's a very kind of practical sort of thing. 
what are the what are the the paragraphs in that book you have at home that really have stirred you in the past for Christ? You, you know, there's like the particular illustration, uh, Spurgeon's conversion. I've read it a thousand times. I mean, I, this exaggeration just slightly. I, I've read it probably a hundred times. I'm not kidding. O- over the last 20 years or whatever, I, I read his his conversion regularly because it stirs me repeatedly. W- what are the, the the what are the the clips, the the the, the sermons, the interviews, the, the the sections of chapters of books that have stirred you awake in the past? remember where those are, mark them out, the hymns that get you, right? Like you just mentioned, have a hymn book and mark out the pages of specific hymns that really have have stirred you into alertness and awakeness in the past. And and, and remember where they are, put bookmarks, right? Save those spots so that when you're desperate and you really need something, I I know the books I can turn to to say, oh man, I I, I still have to pray and ask the Lord for help, but I know if I go here, it's more likely than not that that there will be uh, an awakening moment that comes with that. Yep, keep a list of God's promises that have loved, that have stirred you, and go to them, and go to them, and go to them, and meditate on them, and think about them, and enjoy them. And Scott, verse 3 reminded me of you there, remember. Remember then what you received and heard. And I, I thought about how many times you've reminded us of remembering the gospel. And it, it kind of helped us to understand what are we to remember, and then there's forgetting what's behind and pressing on toward what's ahead from Philippians 3.13. So we're supposed to forget some stuff and remember some things. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I just there's an excellent Piper did a look at the book uh, on the Philippians three one is excellent, and he talks about 1989 uh, Tour de France, and I guess that Greg LeMond was in second place. It was the last race. He was 50 something seconds behind the leader. It was a timed run, and he had to make up 50 something seconds in this one race. And Greg LeMond apparently didn't want to listen to anything in his radio. He didn't want to hear anything about the other racer. He didn't want to know anything. He took it out, and he just solely focused on racing as fast as he possibly could. Like, nothing was going to distract him. He was going to race as fast as he could, and apparently he won the race by, like, eight seconds. By, and I just thought, Piper just said it was anything, basically, like, forgetting what lies behind, what hinders us spiritually, like, by looking back, if that causes me to hinder me in my race, then, like, you need to forget about it. It could be past successes in your past, like Paul's list, that, that list there. If that is causing me to slow down, then get rid of it. But whatever, if you look back and it causes you to strengthen your faith and, and pushes you on uh, to love and good deeds and to help you persevere, then re- remember those things. I think this is the Philippians passage that I quote, Philippians, I mean, Ephesians 2, over and over. Re- remember, like, remember that you were lost, you were without hope, without God in the world. Like, re- that type of remembrance is good. Uh, even the, the, the woman in Luke 7, like, those who are f- forgiven much, love much. Like, if you remember the amount of sins that he's, he's forgiven you, uh, it, will, it will stir you on. So we want to remember the gospel again and again, I, I think uh, Schreiner just said, isn't it amazing how quickly churches forget the gospel? And then right away he said, well, isn't it amazing how quickly I forget the gospel? I just mm-hmm. thought it was so good. Churches forget it, but so do we. we. We forget so quickly, and we need to go back and remember uh, gospel truth. And even just today, I'm just, I was thinking about you know, Jesus on, on the cross, and darkness, I mean, I can't even talk about it, and darkness covers the whole land. Like, that is God saying, I'm here in judgment on my son. And like, I think Sproul just said the mocking would have ceased. They couldn't, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Like three hours, Jesus endures the wrath of God. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning. And you, you remember, you think about it, and think, how can it be that he, he would die in my place? And then worship comes. It's just, it's just stag- I mean, just the, the, the amazing thing about the gospel, it's just staggering. And, and yet we can, we're so quick to forget it and so quick to go in our own strength. And there it is. Uh, yeah, we just want to be gospel-centered pr- people. And pray that we would be, because when you come, I mean, just, just coming this afternoon, think about just the darkness, and it's just absolutely incredible to remember. So let's pick back up. I'll reread here, starting at verse 2. 
wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. That's got to include the gospel and basic Christian teaching. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, even though this church is in largely a, almost entirely dead, just let me pause here. He starts by saying they're dead, and then later he says that they are about to die. So you can clearly say that the death thing is a slight overstatement. You guys are dead. He means the majority of the church is dead, but there's a minority that's still alive. And so you're mostly dead, but you're not totally dead. And so probably he's calling first on the ones who are still awake to especially initiate this, but Mm -hmm. he's calling everyone to repent. And this is the glorious thing about the gospel, which is that repentance is always available in front of us so long as there is breath, that we can always repent at this very moment. Uh, Today, as long as you is called today, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. But instead, repent. And if we repent now, if we, if we throw aside sin now, all is forgiven and we're rest, restored back into the fellowship with Christ. Thoughts on this uh, invite, inv- invitation to repent? I, I love that, you know, first of all, that's how we come to know Christ. But this is a daily thing, an hourly thing, a minutely thing, continually. Continually we repent for our, maybe our attitudes, maybe for the pride that, that um, is the selfishness, those kind of things that continually get us, we go back and back and enjoy the thought that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we go back and we turn, we repent by turning around, turning from sin and racing back to the cross to to know him and serve him. Verse four again, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Clearly, we're not worthy does not mean we're meriting our salvation. I think that's clear. But they are living in accordance with what they profess to be true. Uh, and, and I love that there's a few names. Jesus, like, so imagine you're in a very, maybe it's not even in a church, maybe it's your work environment. You're the only Christian, right? I mean, everyone around you is a Christian or at best a nominal Christian, right? I mean, they just, there's no evidence of God at work in these people. It just it looks like absolutely dark and, and hopeless. Well, Jesus remembers the few names that are faithful wherever they are. The few names, Jesus knows your name. He's totally aware of the struggle. He knows exactly what's going on with this handful in the church at Sardis who have not soiled their garments, which means worldliness has not taken over them. Their garments are pure. They're still living committedly to the Lord. And Jesus remembers them by name. I think that's a huge encouragement. Thoughts about the encouraging aspect? I like Ray. You know, we went over this pretty quickly, but at the be- in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, I know your works again. You know, and he, and he says those kind of things to every church. I know your works. And in this church, there weren't very many good ones, but he knew those few. That remnant that was still, that was going to have the, the um, white garments, um, and they did not soil their garments um, so I love that the Lord knows who are his and, uh, and takes good care of them. And he who began that good work in them will carry it on to completion. So, so there were some, there was a remnant here, which is uh, encouraging and, and, and have to be a wake-up call for the rest of the church. 
I mean, just one quick quote. He just said, uh, all through the letters of Revelation, we have found Jesus searching out things to praise because of his love for his people. Even in the dead church of Sardis, the faithful remnant is praised. So, you know. Can you read verses 5 and 6? Yeah. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah, the, the, the never being blotted out of the book of life is hugely encouraging, obviously. Uh, the eternal security of the believer, uh, which runs throughout the New Testament, the idea that God will not lose his own, uh, our names will not be blotted out of the book of life, that they are there forever. Um, Jerry, thoughts on the, these encouraging texts right here at the end? Yeah, no, I mean, if we, there's so many great passages to go to, and it's hard to know what a favorite is, but turn to John, um, the no snatching rule, it's what we call it at school, no one can snatch you out of my father saying, I love it, John, um, 10, 28, 29, um, in there. And, and man, what a neat thing to know. What a beautiful thing to know that God is never going to lose you. Look at verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why do people not believe? Because they're not the sheep. And so verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know, I know them. I know your works, those things. And, and here we see it again. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's great assurance to know that. I think numbers of pastors have said, if we could lose our salvation, I mean, I would do it daily. Just I would, I'm prone to wonder, but that's not the case. God has us in his loving right hand and he's not going to let us go. So encouraging. And there's countless other passages. We'll get there in eight weeks on uh, Sundays I get, uh, when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. Yes. All right, we're almost done. Let's go back to Revelation 3. Uh, one last part here on, the, on verse 5. He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is an echo of in Matthew. Remember when Jesus says, if you don't confess me before others, I will not confess you before my Father. And so a bold proclamation of Jesus, an unembarrassed proclamation of Jesus by our life and by our words is an evidence of true conversion. To, to, be, to be unembarrassed, to be affiliated closely with Jesus in front of the watching world uh, is a sign of a Christian. And the sign of a false convert is the person who's going to say, I'm not going to bring up the Jesus thing now because I'm going to lose some social capital and cultural credibility here because I don't want to offend people with the Jesus talk. But Jesus says, no, if you confess me, I'll confess you. If you refuse to confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father, because the evidence of true faith is going to be whether we're bold in our proclamation of Jesus. And that was, that's going to look different in different ways for different people, but we, we need to be unembarrassed and unashamed about Christ, and He, in response in eternity, will be unembarrassed and unashamed to identify with us. Any closing thoughts tonight? I'll just read one more quote. He, he just said, Jesus' point is to amplify the security of true believers. To be sure, our names may be on the rolls of an earthly church without being in the book of life above, but Jesus assures those who have truly believed in Christ and persevered in obedience to God's word that their membership in the roles of heaven is eternally sure. Here, believers have the strongest assurance of salvation. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Just yeah, very encouraging. Yeah, it's great. Mark, could you tell us about, uh, just like as far as North Avenue, when you read Sardis, what comes to mind that we ought to uh, um, 
we never want condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what should we be convicted of? What can we go to, uh, to work on considering this passage? Yeah, I, I speak this sincerely as much to myself as to anybody. But I think in our church, we, we, the Ephesian struggle, which is similar in some ways to the struggle here in some ways, could be ours, which is the Ephesian struggle is discernment and doctrine, they're doing well. Jesus compliments that. But what's wrong? They'd lost the passion and love and zeal. And here, uh, it's hard to know all the details of the church in Sardis, but having a reputation for life when the life is actually falling asleep internally, uh, I, I think that could be a danger. I don't think it's something that's prominent in our church, but I think it could be a possible danger is we can have all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. We can have all of our information figured out, and we can even be pretty bold about it in terms of we're not going to back down. We're going to believe what we believe. We're not going to be intimidated by the culture. We're going to say what we believe is true. I, that, that can all be true of a church, and that's all wonderful stuff, vital, essential truth. But my zeal for those truths can wane even when all that is going on. And so I think that's what we need to be asking our own selves uh, amongst our own heart to say, is there a spiritual sleepiness that's going on even though I've got the information correct? And I'm even saying it maybe publicly. Is the, is the humility, the love, the passion, the joy, is it really still there? Is it growing stronger or is it starting to wax and wane and, and grow uh, more into a state of, uh, of lethargy? Yeah, it's good. Can you close us in prayer? Yes, sir. Father, it is uh, very encouraging to know that uh, you do have us in your loving right hand and you will not uh, let us go when we truly know our Savior. Um, certainly, Lord, we um, know that um, uh, many of us have at one time been pretty sure we were alive when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. And we needed um, you and you only um, to... Um, make us alive, which you've done due to your great mercy and your great love in which we know only you could do. Um, and so, Lord, um, if there are any that are dead here tonight, I pray, Lord, that you would do um, this great work in their heart, regenerate their heart so that they could put their faith in Christ and race to the cross to know you, to love you, to serve you, to enjoy you forever. And Father, we pray that for each of us that battles, and I imagine this is our uh, battle for every one of us in here where we grow, where we start to drift, or we grow a little sleepy, and we um, lose some of our zeal, and uh, um, maybe we um, are, are falling asleep some, and we ask, Lord, that you would um, wake us up, and that you would do this great work in us, and that you would use us in each other's lives. Um, in this church and maybe at our workplace to, um, to also be uh, evangelists of the, of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would um, take heart from this passage today, that we would be warned and encouraged. And as we've been challenged tonight, um, I pray that we would uh, race to the gospel often to think about, uh, to remember the glorious things that you've done in um, us um, for your glory alone. And we put our hope in you, in Jesus' name.